welcome to episode 27 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Derek Gottlieb, I'm Kara Furman. This week, our guest spoke to the need for environmental and outdoor education. As with previous guests, they moved between the art and the science of attending, in this case, to the natural world. In doing so, they called for the humanities as an outlook, something to be cultivated as a way of attending. They parsed the difference between beauty and the sublime and the power of both, and they encouraged us to imagine what the world might be like if children grew up eager to immerse themselves in all kinds of weather. Enjoy. Hi, both of you. So nice to have you with us today. Thank you for taking the time. We always start by asking you to uh, introduce yourselves to our listeners. Annie, would you uh, care to go first? Sure. Uh, first, good to see you both again, fully, like not even 48 hours later. We just had a great weekend at the Ohio Valley Philosophy of Education Society annual meeting together. Um, so good to see you both again so soon. I'm Annie uh, Schultz. I'm an assistant professor of classical and liberal education at Flagler College. Um I work generally in uh, the area of aesthetics of environment and education. Um, and yeah, we can like think through what that even means as the conversation unfolds. Excellent. Thanks for that, having me. That is what we are here to do. And Leanne? Hi, I'm Leanne Holland. Um, I'm an assistant professor at St. Lawrence University. And I do appreciate getting to see you again so soon, both of you. Thanks for having me here. Um, I also, at St. Lawrence University, am the coordinator of the graduate program in leadership. So I teach both undergraduates and graduate students. And we're here to talk about environmental learning. So I'm excited to get into that. That is such a wonderful transition. Thank you both for uh, doing my job. And yes, I should like, and for mentioning that OVPES was literally two days ago and, or yeah, it feels like it was already forever ago, but very odd to be speaking with some, with two people again, whom, you know, we got to share conversation with so recently. So for both of you, how did you come to be interested in a professional way, in an intellectual way, in the issues that you study? And what are those issues in particular? Leanne, would you uh, like to go first? Sure. Um, so I, and I've had a number of years now to, to think about the implications or the, actually, no, the background of the foundations of where I've come to this work. And I, I have a hard time pulling back one single moment. Um, but I have been a wilderness guide in the past. So that's had an, um, some impact on my work. And I've spent a great deal of time living outdoors and, working as a distance hiker. And prior to any of those experiences, though, I think I first started considering ecological issues in education when I was a sixth grade English teacher in South Dakota. And I was struggling with teaching as an early teacher in a classroom space where I wasn't able to open the classroom windows. And you would think that that wouldn't be such a big problem that we could just operate fine considering that. But there were so many different times when I was thinking about 
well, you know, some fresh air would do us good. Or considering that sixth graders in the area that I was teaching was a Lakota reservation, considering that sixth graders at that time would traditionally be going through their tribe's rites of passage that involved being out on the land, that involved them being out in the air, the fresh air, moving about, operating with their landscape, and that we were trapped together and jammed together in a, a room that we couldn't get any, just any circulation. Um, and I would say it was a, you know, a wonderful building in general, but um, it, it got me thinking very early on what teachers are dealing with when working with students, trying to like transition them into their, you know, public and personal roles as learners and the space that they're operating in. So um, I would say and stuff, I first started thinking about environmental issues from the classroom perspective. And then as I became more of a hiker and an outdoors person and a guide, I considered what it was like to actually walk people through that process of learning about their environment. Does that help? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that response. Annie? Um, wow. So I don't have nearly the, um, you know, the, tra the trajectory and experience with kind of more, you know, formal environmental education as Leanne does. And, and I'll say like, I guess this is still a pretty um, new thing for me. I mean, I've always loved being outside, um, but I never really, I don't know, I, like philosoph philosophized on that um, until, you know, the past few years. And if I were to pinpoint something that kind of got me interested in this in a scholarly way, I think I would have to point at um, a great book that... Um, our colleagues Suzanne Rice and A.G. Rudd put together. It's a collection of essays called The Educational Significance of Human and Non-Human Animal Encounters. I think I got that title right. You might have to fact check me. Um, and yeah, it's a collection of essays about, you know, folks writing about the, you know, educational pieces of encounters with the non-human. And I was just, I don't know, it just it made something click to me. And also I would characterize myself as a, as a over, like overly perhaps sensitive and empathetic person. And, um, yeah, I just kind of started thinking about how are we, uh, attending to, uh, to like that, which is outside of us. And to me, the obvious thing there is, um, you know, the non-human or natural environment or spaces and non-human others. So I guess that's what I would say. Excellent. Thank you. And, you know, just to speak, well, thinking broadly, since you've been interested in these issues professionally and intellectually, what have you come to find about them so far? What have you learned? And what directions are your current intellectual endeavors moving uh, right now? Annie, I'm going to turn around and ask you to speak on this first. Um, so I, I think the, the main thing that I've learned is how important humanities and, and arts-based education can be toward um, environmental education or uh, what, what is sometimes called eco-justice pedagogy. Um, and, you know, if you had asked me at some earlier time in life, uh, you know, I would have said, oh, well, environmentally 
education or ecological education is for the sciences. Like that's something you learn in like a life science class or something like that. And, you know, what I've learned through my, you know, reading and research and writing is that in fact, um, the arts generally, uh, visual art, literature, you know, even music, et cetera, are really, really vital tools for, um, for cultivating these kinds of sensibilities. Um, and also that like being ecological isn't just, you know, the things you think of like recycling or making informed, you know, purchasing choices or that kind of thing that being ecological is also, um, you know, I don't mean to get like too woo woo, but being ecological is a state of mind. It is, it is a way, actually a way of thinking. It's a thought framework as much as, um, as much as like a set of actions. Excellent. Thank you. Leanne, same question. Well, this is kind of excellent that you had Annie go first because I get to I, I get to agree with her on some things. And so I guess I'm going to repeat her, her, her answer a bit. Um, so I would say there are sort of three different things, three main things that I've learned. The first is very much in, in tune with Annie, the importance of the arts and aesthetics and sort of how we appreciate nature being an important role and how we're able to consider it. Um, and I think that that relates to her comment on and the, the environment being a sort of the way we treat the environment and, and non-human others being a sort of state of mind. Um, I think also then the second point is that I've now gone from thinking about aesthetics to thinking about the importance of language use um, for that state of mind, particularly in how we use different terms and phrases and metaphors to relate to the weather and the environment and how that use of common phrases changes or or helps us reconsider or maybe solidifies a state of mind about the things around us. And the third is kind of a depressing point, I'm sorry. Um, what I've learned over time that's a very hard lesson actually for educators to deal with is that teaching facts and information and focusing on knowledge acquirement does not necessarily lead to behavioral change or action. Um, that's, you know, we, we're constantly fighting these other factors of what makes us decide to be activists or ecologists or um, patrons and, and cons conservators of the environment. And that's led me, I think, to my next stage, which would be to focus on a bit more how human psychology comes into play. Um, I'm looking into sort of psychoanalysis and some um, patterns of attraction and how people are sort of drawn to behavioral change, not only just learning about different facts and figures, but, but seeing it and having it impact us in some way so that we do something about it. Thank you so much, both of you. This is a particularly interesting issue. And to hear both of your descriptions of uh, the limitations of, on the one hand, for Annie, uh, actions, which are somehow separable from a state of mind, and Lien's, uh 
comments on the way that facts can be separable from actions. It, it occurs to me that like the kinds of actions that Annie had mentioned are supposed to be downstream of some of like a, a general change in this in our state of mind the way we think about things and the way we think about our relations to the things all around us but that they don't have to be we can be whatever we can recycle or buy priuses or whatever without without meaningfully changing our uh those are those can be accommodated within the same framework mentally that has led us down a certain uh unsustainable path uh, in terms of our and like ethically problematic path, and same thing for Leanne with facts. Like you, we can know facts, and and yet that knowledge can be uh, digested by us or internalized by us in ways that do not, in fact, lead to the kinds of uh, behavioral or attitudinal changes that we think uh, that they imply. So just very like interesting. I'm very glad to have you both here together to talk through these issues. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how, you know, your specific training as philosophers or the specific tools of philosophy have helped you get into these uh, particular issues? And I'll turn it back now to uh, Leanne to go first on on this one. Okay. Um, This is this is such a. ironic question for me because I I feel like I spend a lot of time working with students in an education department and in a leadership program trying to explain to them how philosophy makes any sense in in connection to these things. And I think about a philosophical lens mattering for these subjects because of the skill set it brings with it, the way that we use philosophy and philosophical um, training to interpret things carefully, to think analytically, um, to consider different ideas and therefore be able to separate certain positions from other positions. So not only to from personally so that I, I know that I'm being accurate when I do research, but also to think about the purpose and the values behind the actions that we make and the information that we're taking in. Excellent. Thank you. Annie? So I, um, you know, I'm going to echo some things that that Leanne said, but especially when we're thinking about um, different kinds of attitudes or or like attitudinal actions, we'll say like appreciation and what experiences of, of beauty or the sublime are like. I mean, these are philosophical questions, right? So what is beauty? You know, what form does it take or where does it come from or what is its source? And then what does our, you know, inner experience or judgment of it look like? Or what, or what is, um, when we talk about appreciation, like what is that thing? What is appreciation? To me, that's, that's where, um, where philosophy as a, as a discipline or as a practice is helpful, right? Like, um, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, throw names around or, or, uh, complicate things, but Kant's third critique. I mean, you know, I don't, it, it, it's a way to, you know, thinking about judgment, um, or what aesthetic judgment is, is a way to thinking for me about, um, 
environmental appreciation or appreciating the environment in the way that we would appreciate art. I guess it's sort of a way in to the thought in the first place. And it's just also where I found myself like academically, (laughs) like there's also that, like, you know, it's, it's an interest, um, like in environmental stuff or aesthetics of environment is an interest I have that's like an extension of finding myself in humanities-based or philosophy of education in my academic trajectory. So you could also just say that it's all a big happy accident. Okay. Yeah. Can I, sorry, can I interject and stuff? I, I want to, I'm hearing and stuff, Annie, talk about these terms that matter so much for both of us. Um, and I'm hearing you talk about appreciation of beauty and the sublime. And I'm wondering if you would clarify for us what you take the sublime to be, because I, I find that a lot of people hear this word all the time, but don't really know what sort of experience that's supposed to be and how it's any different from beauty and other types of appreciation, or maybe in your your words, judgment, or in Khan's word, taste. So just before Annie answers, I, I need to, and I need to thank Leanne for this question, which is a typical Kara question. Uh, and she can't be with us in this recording. So I, I so much appreciate it. I was totally just going to move on without doing that. So Annie, please. Yes. Thank you, Leanne. Um, good on you for, for, um, calling me on that. So, um, in, uh, so Edmund Burke, who, you know, just a old dead philosopher, um, he, uh, to my knowledge, kind of first put forth this, this bifurcation of the beauty, the beautiful and the sublime in aesthetic judgment or aesthetic experience. And, you know, when we say aesthetic judgment, we just mean, you know, like an articulation of, of, of preference, um, or a liking or an attraction towards something. And, you know, and then Kant took this up, um, Immanuel Kant and his, in his, um, uh, in the third critique. And before that, he wrote something that's actually called on the feeling of the beautiful and the sublime. And I know Kant's description of these two types of aesthetic judgment best. So he characterizes beauty and experience, like something is beautiful if it is charming, delightful. So it, it's, um, he says, at play with the imagination and the senses, whereas the sublime is in some way violent toward our imagination. So we would call something sublime that's um, like awesome in the awe-inspiring way, um, majestic, right? So like a, a, a flower in a meadow is beautiful, a, a, like an, a great ancient oak or mountain range is sublime, Um, and I, and, you know, in saying that (laughs) I'm just endlessly trying to think about the, you know, what these two kinds of feelings or experiences mean for environmental appreciation or sensibility. Um, so this is kind of a question that, um, yeah, that, that drives a lot of my thinking. So Leanne, I'm glad that you asked that. And also, while I'm here, um, I also just want to say, and I didn't mention this in, in the first couple of questions where we were kind of introducing our, you know, our interests or how we got interested. I do want to say that I am heavily influenced by Leanne's work. So in terms of, 
you know, and I and I've and I've said this to her, but I want the audience to know that this is really a great pairing because, you know, a lot of my interests are very much inspired by, you know, Leanne's own work and um, and is something that I engage with. So just want to put that in there. Okay, so given the things that you study and the things that you have uh, uh, learned about ecological thinking, the distinctions between, or like, let's say, the relative impotence of facts, or like the the non-necessary connections between people's individual actions and their overall ways of seeing and approaching the world. What are the implications of like for policymakers or legislators who deal with educational matters? What are the implications for those people? What should those people be thinking about with respect to schooling and schools? Uh, this time, let me have uh, Annie go first. Well, they should be thinking about the arts and the humanities, first of all. Um, so I, I think this is a good opportunity to, you know, to say, you know, along with everyone else who's not just saying it, but like screaming it at the top of their lungs that um, cuts to humanities curriculum and programming is a problem for environmental and ecological education. Because, you know, as Leanne was saying, students can sit in a life science class and, and, and learn factual information and come to a certain level of understanding about this stuff, which is hugely important. But, you know, we might say that for some students where they really come to care about this stuff, um, you know, on an emotional level is when they are, you know, um, reading about the earth or the land in, in literary works. And, you know, it's surprising how often, um, the earth or dirt or non-human animals kind of show up as key characters and, you know, the great literature of the canon. Um, so yeah, I guess that's what I would say. I don't, you know, I don't do a lot of work in the, in the policy area, um, or curriculum era area either for that matter. But I would just take this opportunity to say that this is one among many of the, of the areas of education that suffer, when, you know, we, we lose focus or, um, an emphasis on humanities and arts-based learning. So thank you. Leanne. All right. I'm gonna, sorry, pull you back again for just a second. I, I promise I'll answer this question as well, but I just wanted to take a second to say thank you, Annie, for acknowledging me and, um, reading my research. That was great. I know when Annie first came on the scene of e ecology and education and learning, I was, I found myself doing a lot of head nodding. I was just really relieved to hear somebody else saying, yes, this is valuable. Let's talk about this. And, um, I wanted to just comment on the beauty versus sublime difference too, because I think Annie's outlined this really well for us and given us some basic history of where philosophers have taken these ideas. I just wanted to like to to kind of explain again like why we're why we're interested in aesthetics and these artistic sensory experiences. Um and that's because I think when we talk about something like beauty that's where um the 
sort of appreciation ethics come from that we oftentimes follow in schools and in environmental education. We're thinking so much about teaching students how to look around them and love and feel something for the environment, but in a pleasurable way, in a way of noticing something as beautiful. And therefore, we're implying that that will have some long-term effects for that student. Um, when I bring up the sublime and when I'm thinking about the sublime, I think that's a different direction to go. The sublime for me is like, can be described in like crashing waterfalls or standing at the edge of a cliff. You're sort of safe, but you're not safe. Um, looking at the stars and realizing how minuscule you are in the, in the world. Um, those are kind of what I would consider not just not beautiful moments, but aha moments, almost, you know, dramatic. Um, and when I think about these two terms, the beautiful and the sublime, I think about us going from talking about valuing something to learning about something or viewing something versus acting on something or enjoying the pleasure of appreciating some beautiful work versus transforming ourselves through witnessing something sublime. So I think that's just important to, to think about how these can can relate to us and that a lot of work I think focuses on how beautiful and lovable the environment is. And we don't oftentimes think about how tragic and horrific and dramatic and uncomfortable and risky these feelings of sublime are and what we can learn from those as well. Um, so thanks for the letting me do that. I guess you didn't let me do that, but to kind of take us to another place for a second. Um, but going back to like, what are the implications for the system as though on a whole? I mean, I completely agree with Annie about the loss of the humanities is a loss of a way to look at the environment in an important way that establishes state of mind, like we had talked about earlier. Um, we can teach these facts in science classes, but that's not at all to help students understand the systemic nature of literally nature. <laughs> of being in the environment and the experience of living in it when we're losing species and the climate's getting hotter in areas and we're seeing, you know, um, ladybugs disappearing. I talked about this weekend too. That's last time I think I recognize an actual ladybug and not a invasive Japanese beetle was when I was a child. So um, thinking about the system as a whole, I'm, I think we need to, help policymakers rethink the space of classrooms, rethink the, rethink the actual physical space of rooms. And then also to rethink the way that we isolate students or brains and bodies in a separatory like way, as if they, as if they're not connected to the multisensory environment innately. Um, and through that, I think, you know, for example, just the attempts that we make to make um, the attempts that we have, and then policymakers try to do to get us to focus in a school setting rather than think about all of the ways that we can control and isolate student brains. We should be thinking about how we can um, challenge them and encourage discomfort and think about the ways that their environment may in fact come to be synonymous with risk, with difference, discomfort. Um, so that's what I'm hoping that, in a very concrete way and stuff too, I agree with Annie, don't cut the humanities because that's the arts and aesthetics and these things help us to understand, not 
not just to hear the facts, but to actually understand them and make use of them, but also to think about what we keep perpetuating as physical buildings in a school, um, about windows that don't open or about um, timing students between classroom settings, you know, the ways in which we try to control the mind by controlling the body. Well said. The I'm also hearing just because we very recently recorded an episode with Samantha Dean and Brian Warnick on violence in schools. This this also seems to remind me of uh, a tendency to sort of respond to things that we don't like by, in Brian's words, target hardening, which is to say like a further sort of um, a move to further isolate and exclude classrooms or schools from the things that surround them ostensibly for the good of the things happening within them, but on the assumption that such a thing is even possible. And so in, in your two responses, I'm hearing, you know, the way that the arts and the humanities are separated from the study of nature as an object as though like we can draw firm disciplinary boundaries uh, in terms of our, in terms of the ways that we are, educating people to respond to or be in relation with this particular thing. And then also the way in which that tendency to exclude or uh, draw lines or boundaries between things is repeated even in sort of the physical infrastructure in which we do the educational sort of endeavor. So that thank you for that very rich uh, set of responses. And for like for moving from like a policy level down to the level of individual school buildings and individual educators working uh, in classrooms of various kinds, what should these folks be thinking about in terms of the uh, research that you are doing, including in terms of the things that you are finding? I'm going to start with Leanne this time rather than Annie. Okay. All right. Um, Thanks again. I, th I think this is a important step to take because as we're, hopefully some of our audience members are teachers and they're thinking, well, this is great. I can maybe vote or put a certain politician, to, you know, in to make these decisions on a policy level or a federal or state level. But what am I actually doing when I see my school or parents thinking about like how you can, how you can manifest a different sort of state of mind for your kids and I think there are a lot of things happening at the local levels that can be really, that we can really strongly impact. For example, I, I, anywhere that's building a new school, considering the plans for the architecture, for the plans in, in your school and having space to walk between classrooms, perhaps between buildings so that students are exposed to the environment, even on a rainy day. Or, you know, when we talk about whether or not when, when schools are debating dropping recess times. I know that's, I've certainly seen that as a classroom teachers, um, that being a debate over time that perhaps we need students to move less during the day and focus more on task preparation. Or um, thinking about uh, as teachers deal with the hot and coldness of a classroom. So, you know, concerning specifically in my words and stuff, the weather in a space. Um, I think these are all ways in which we can these these ideas of a new ecological state of mind really matter for um, those who are in the field. And 
I mean, I would also add that it's, it's sort of, well, now I guess I'm, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> just get too in depth with thinking about this, but I was um, just imagining and stuff that it's not only about um, teachers and parents being involved in trying to, you know, make new buildings, but also just thinking about the space in which their students are learning. Thank you. And Annie? Yeah, I. so I'm going to kind of call back to something that Leanne um, mentioned earlier, which is, you know, one thing that is a huge part of, of day-to-day education and curriculum is the language we use and how we're using it. And I think this is an important entry point into maybe like being more ecological and and like attending to how we uh, how we regard other beings or uh, non-human, you know, um, un- underdeveloped or un- uh, untouched spaces. So, um, for example, like um, I think maybe our our listeners will be familiar with Robin Wall Kimmer's work. She wrote uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, she has another smaller book, um, which is a part of this penguin series, I think called green thinking or something like that. Um, and it's called democracy of species. And she uses, um, some indigenous language structures as kind of a a model for this to, to us, to give non-human beings, human pronouns. And, and basically her argument for this is while some might view that as really, as like anthropomorphism, right? She says something like, the way we speak about things is sort of antecedent to if we care about them or how we care about them. Um, so, you know, she talks about like, if, um, if, uh, you know, uh, if, if a maple tree isn't it, it's easier to take, take up the chainsaw than if it is a, a her, um, kind of thing, which again, you know, we, we might think, well, that's silly or that's woo woo or something. But I mean, we know that language is really powerful because we talk about that in other ways, right? Like, so the way that we, the way that we describe, you know, groups of human beings or, um, you know, the way that we identify ourselves through language, right? Like that has tremendous political importance and, you know, why, why couldn't we extend that out to, to the non-human or to, you know, like quote unquote nature in general? So I do think language use is one, you know, um, maybe kind of simple entry point, right? Like I can see this being a part, I can see Robin Wall Kimmer's work being a part of, of, of language arts courses. Yeah, certainly. I also, Sorry, Not just since I, since I mentioned that Penguin series, Green Spaces, Green Thinking, sorry, Green Thinking, also you might need to fact check this. Also in that series is a, a little uh, book by Timothy Morton called All Art is Ecological. And in terms of something kind of, I say accessible, I don't know, I might, I might be putting my foot in my mouth there, but it's, it's a short little book and um, Timothy Morton connects 
art and ecology in in kind of a nice way. So I just wanted to put that out there as 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 a potential resource. I just wanted to make sure real quickly that I am hearing you correctly when you called Tim Morton accessible. Was that correct? Is that <laughs> just, just <laughs> I said I was probably putting my foot in my mouth. And also, um, yeah, like Leanne and I have an ongoing thing. I'd say I'd say we agree about most um, most things, but perhaps Timothy Morton is like the one the one area. um, Yeah, where where we perhaps do not. But I just meant that. You know, like Leanne has used the word poppy to describe Timothy Morton's work. And to me, that makes me think, okay, you know, popular, accessible or an easy way in. But yeah, as I said, my foot may, I may find my foot in my mouth. Well, I was thinking popular as in like, you know, Slavoj Žižek is popular on YouTube. <laughs> it just not, doesn't mean he's necessarily accessible. Um, those are, those two folks are they know each other too. Well, I was thinking more like um, if you're going to give folks people to read that that might be both popular and accessible and stuff. Robin Wall Kimmer is a good choice too. But um, I I was first very intrigued by David Abram, the Spell of the Sensuous, and that's been out for a while now, and it's actually very you know a very reasonable book to purchase too. And I think there's just so many gold nuggets there, especially for thinking about as you said, Annie language and. You know, any of these books and stuff like uh, We Are the Weather or, um, you know, Tristan Gooley's series on like on being able to interpret weather um, are helpful because I, I think, for example, we have this phrase that we use often that no, there's no bad weather, only bad clothes. And I, I think about that, too, uh, about how if a student is raised under that perspective, perhaps they think differently about when it's, you know pouring rain out one day and stuff and that you're afraid to go outside that it just opens up the doors for so many different things if you're not just limiting valued judgments to the way that you use the language that's perfect i uh i feel like i just heard that abram's book mentioned very recently perhaps at ovps and that i struggling to remember the context but also, wow, thank you for thank you for those recommendations. And in like as soon as we start a Patreon for this uh, podcast, I'm, we have never talked about doing this before. I'm going to have you guys back on to hash out your uh, Timothy Morton disagreement in a subscribers only sort of venue. <laughs> uh, well, great. Thank you so much for coming on today. I know that Kara is very sorry that she. Uh, missed our conversation or wasn't able to be here. Uh, This has been very rich and rewarding, and I'm sure that our listeners will like it very much. Thank you so much, Derek, for having us on and for pairing uh, Leanne and I together. Very good choice. We it's like, you know, um, wine and and dark chocolate. We just we pair. Yeah, cut that out. That was dumb. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was it's just thinking which one of us is wine or dark chocolate. But uh, no, I appreciate this too. I think it's really wonderful. I, I was very excited when I saw Annie's name too in the sort of call. And I, I miss Kara as well. So I just want to send her well wishes and thank Derek for taking this time out to allow Annie and I a chance to just reconnect over where where our research overlaps and where there are important sort of 
um, avenues for further exploration. Awesome. Reconnect for the first time in like 48 hours. Perfect. <laughs> exactly. We were just on a on a panel together. So with Brian Warnick, who you mentioned, um, will be or was in a recent episode of Thinking in the Mitts. So we're just, uh, yeah, the we're we're just all popping up everywhere. Us philosophers of education. My God, it sounds like the Ohio Valley Philosophy of Education Society meeting is a really great place to be. Is all that I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. I would highly recommend it, um, yeah, to anyone interested in getting in on these conversations. And that is our show. Many thanks to Leanne and Annie for taking the time to talk to us. As always, do subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review to help others discover us as well. Many thanks to my four-year-old, who in hearing this episode as I picked him up from his forest preschool in his all-weather gear said, Ooh, nature. That's what my school is all about. Our listeners are broad and varied, and listener suggestions support us to do this work better. The email address at which you can reach Derek and I together is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. We also have a form linked to the episode description if you'd like to suggest future topics and or guests. So, for Derek Gottlieb, and in two weeks when we put up our next episode, I'm Kara Furman, and we'll see you next time.